It's an ever-present theme in the story of the people of God. Uh, things often go from bad to worse, and it's no different during our study through the Kings and Kingdom series. Solomon was an okay king. He, he started out good, but he quickly went downhill. And then the nation of Israel split. The, the southern part, Judah, they fared some better than its northern counterpart. And out of 20 kings, I believe 16 of Judah's kings were considered bad. It led the people to sin. That's only four good kings left. Kings who led the people to worship the one true God in a manner that God would prescribe. If we were to look at the northern kings, we would see a similar story, only worse. Out of 20 kings, the northern tribes don't even have one good king that would lead them to worship Yahweh according to the law. Not one. Each king was evil, and each king successively was more evil than the last. In our text today, 1 Kings chapter 18, we read a story that involves one such king, Ahab. Ahab was a, indeed a dreadful king. He, he took Israel to an all-new low, even for them. Under his rule, anything went, including Baal worship and even child sacrifice. God punished Israel by sending the prophet Elijah to announce an ensuing drought that lasted for three years. And just as mysteriously as, as Elijah showed up and told what was going to happen, he disappeared. But he returned at the end of the three-year period, and he's there for business. There's no doubt that God now had the attention of the people. He had the attention of Ahab the king. And, and knowing this, Elijah summoned all of Israel to a competition on top of Mount Carmel. This is a gripping story. It's, it's a long passage, but I, I believe you'll find it fascinating and, and helpful as well. And so let's read the, the passage together. We'll start in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 17. The Bible says, And when, Eli when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you shall call upon the name of the Lord your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God." And all the people answered, It is well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they put... And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, 
Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after they after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. And there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the twelve tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two saves of wood, of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they do it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said to them, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to look at your word this morning. We pray that you'd bless it as we read it. Pray that you'd bless it as we preach. That we would be encouraged, that we'd be convicted, and that your word would challenge us as we move forward as, as your people. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's a powerful story. God clearly demonstrating his power before his people, effectively turning their hearts back to him in spite of their weakness, in spite of sin's grip in their life. When, when God's people draw near to the altar, God demonstrates his power and he draws them to himself. So this morning, theology matters, doctrine matters. And as we look at this story this morning, there are several truths that come to the top, several doctrinal issues that come to the top, and I want to look at them quickly. And they are this, the, the pervasiveness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin. Second, the, the weakness of man, the weakness of man. And third, the power of God, the power of God. And so first, let's look at the pervasiveness of sin. Have you ever heard of chronic wasting disease? It's a contagious disease that affects deer. It, it causes a, a characteristic spongy degeneration of the brains of infected animals, and it basically results in emaciation or abnormal behavior, loss of bodily function, whatever. Eventually, it ends to death. In short, it's bad news. And it's an awful reality for deer. And currently, biologists are working to learn more about the disease and to, how do they prevent it, how they can cure it. But you know what's most interesting to me about this disease? Typically, the animal that is affected by it doesn't die of the disease itself. It dies because of the effects of the disease. You see, deer with this disease are far more prone to predators, far more prone to car accidents, and even drowning. And it literally takes away all of the ability that it has to defend itself. 
You see, sin is similar. It's pervasive. It spreads extensively, and it's present throughout all people. And like chronic wasting disease, it hinders the mind. In fact, it destroys the mind, the ability to know truth and process reality. Did you notice in verse 17 where Ahab calls Elijah the troubler of Israel? Ahab was so affected by the sin that he didn't even realize that he was the one who had been troubling Israel. He had it all flipped. And sin does this to us. It confuses us. Our culture is permeated with this confusion. It is even affecting the church this this morning, the, the church today. It's brought us to the place where we call good bad and bad good. We begin to call murder choice and we call human life clumps of cells. And this culture that we live in, the murderer is often lauded as the hero. It's not just seen in abortion. We also see this type of confusion elsewhere. The church is oftentimes reduced to a country club. And pornography is considered entertainment. Even even the word in our culture, sin, is replaced with phrases like, it was a poor choice or a failure or it was another way. It's clear that sin, like chronic wasting disease, has diseased our ability to sense and avoid the dangers of sin in our lives. We're susceptible to its dangers and we don't even know it. The fact of the matter is, our minds must be renewed, refreshed. Romans chapter 12 speaks of the renewal of the mind, the reprogramming of it, if you will. Sin destroys the mind, but listen, the word of God renews it. I spoke earlier of a few good kings of Judah. One such king was Josiah. When he came to power, Judah was in a bad place, but he found the law, the covenant. They were cleaning out the temple and they found it. The people needed it desperately. He began to read the book himself. And as he did, his own mind was renewed. And then he got the book and he read it to the people. And as he read it to them, they renewed their covenant with Yahweh. The word of God, it renews the mind. Church, this morning, would you have your mind renewed? Get in the word of God. Perhaps you think this morning, I see clearly. I'm not in sin. That's exactly what Ahab said. That's exactly what Ahab thought as he looked at Elijah. No, you're the troubler, Elijah said. Church, we've got to get in the word of God. Fathers, will you lead your families to the word of God? It's often been said, and while it may be considered a corny statement, it's true. Sin keeps you from this book, but this book keeps you from sin. Sin keeps you from this book, but this book keeps you from sin. Church, it renews the mind. We've got to dedicate ourselves to the Word of God. Not only does sin destroy the mind, does it hinder the mind and and thought and truth, but it also spreads rapidly. That's because it's communicable. It's contagious. The constant refrain in Kings that the evil kings led the people to sin. They, they saw the sin themselves. They partook of the sin as kings, and they spread the sin. This is the nature of sin. But not only is it contagious, but it's also hereditary. You see, the sin nature is passed on through our parents, through our fathers. The Second London Baptist Confession puts it this way. Our first parents, by this sin there in the garden, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts 
of body and soul. In other words, Romans puts it this way, uh, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The effects of sin have spread to the point where not one man, woman, or child alive today is not affected by it. Did you, did you hear that? This changes the way that we parent. It should. The way that we interact with the world, it should change it. The way that we view ourselves, this changes it. Man is not basically good. The Bible clearly teaches that junior is a sinner. Our children enter the world as enemies of God and they are destined for judgment. Parents, we must parent with this in mind, pointing them as much as is possible to Jesus and praying that he himself will draw them to himself. You see, sin is pervasive. Coupled with this truth of sin is another doctrine and that is the weakness of man. Romans 8, 7 says it this way. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Indeed, it cannot. The the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to to God's law, and it's not even able to. In his own power, man cannot choose to do good. He cannot not sin. Did you hear that? He cannot not sin. Look at verse 21. There in 1 Kings 18. As Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. You see, the people were noncommittal at best. They limp along without conviction, wanting to follow half-heartedly one God and then the other. Literally limping between, uh, halting between two opinions, or this word limping means to, to limp along between two twigs, on two twigs, or between two ch- twigs. This, the, the, the natural way that we would say it in this day and age would be to, to run in the fence post, straddling it. Israel hadn't totally rejected the Lord, you see, but they were seeking to combine worship of him with worship of Baal. The issue posed by Elijah was that Israel had to choose who was God, the Lord or Baal, and then serve God wholeheartedly. But Elijah knew that they were powerless on their own, and God would have to draw them to himself. He would have to demonstrate his own power. And this is a doctrine that is far too ignored and underemphasized. The total inability of man to please God. The helplessness of of man to obey God. You see, you have to hold these two doctrines together, the pervasiveness of sin and the weakness of man, in order to see your plight in all that it is. You see, sin has infected every man, and no man can or will submit to God. And this is bad news. The Bible says sin, when it is finished, when it ends its course, it brings about death. There's a final observation that we need to look at this morning. That's the power of God. Pervasiveness of sin, we saw that. The weakness of man, we saw that. But now let's look at the power of God. This whole passage, this story is meant to display the awesome power of God. The contrast is extremely strong. We have 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of Yahweh. 
In addition to that, Baal even has the home court advantage. Baal's altar is dry and Yahweh's is wet. Baal gets the ball first. The name of the game is the score first. So you can see it's stacked against Yahweh. But Elijah's not concerned. He views Mount Carmel as a stadium, as a unique opportunity to showcase the Lord's power. Look down at verse 30. And then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. You see, Elijah wanted the people to be close. He wanted them so close that their eyebrows would get singed. Now, I think this phrase is key to the entire passage. There is verse 30, he calls them to come close. But again, in verse 36, it says that Elijah, before he prayed, he came close. And there's more. The very word oblation is the Hebrew word that means to come close, to come near. It's clear that God desires a nearness from his people. In fact, he doesn't just desire it, but it is necessary. So via the, the prophet Elijah, God draws his people in close. I have a question for you this morning. By what right do you the people of God approach him. What makes you think that you have a right to call out to God? You see, it can't be your own merit. You can't earn the right to be heard by God, not in and of yourself. And it's interesting that the prophets of Baal, they resulted to cutting themselves as a way to gain the attention, to draw the gaze of Baal. But he still doesn't answer. There's no response. And this is a contest. Remember, who will answer by fire first? Look down at verse 26. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. So here Elijah, wanting to call attention to their futile attempts and to their absent God, he begins to taunt them. Maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Sad, really. They were calling out to a false god with poor methods and no answer. No answer. Verse 37, Elijah calls out to Yahweh his first time. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. The Israelites had seen a lot of bad ways to approach God. The kings before Ahab had led them all poorly. The prophets of Baal were leading them now. Even their tactics were ineffective. So how are the people to overcome the pervasiveness of sin as well as their own weakness? The key is there in verse 37. It says, Elijah says that, show them, God, that you have turned their hearts back. It's past tense, that you have turned back. Completed action. You see, God had already done the work of changing their hearts. Behold the power of God. Before they even drew near or before they had even come close, God had changed their hearts. You see, you're incapable of breaking the power of sin in your life. You are unable to choose to do good instead of evil. But God is able. He is changing hearts, turning them back to him. Perhaps that is you this morning. He sensed God's calling in you to close into him this morning. 
If so, don't wait. Come to the altar of God, not based on your own merit or value, but based on the fact that Jesus is your sacrifice. How many people are calling out to their God, waiting for an answer, but with no response? Even some resorting to harming themselves to get a response. The irony, no, the beauty is that God harmed himself in order that we would draw near. God sent his son to die that his blood would be shed so that we may draw near. They were shedding their own blood in order to draw attention, the attention of a false God. And in contrast, God the Father sent his own son to a bloody cross so that we might draw near. In the story this morning, the power of God was displayed on the altar of fire, on the altar by fire. God's demonstration there at that altar showed to the people that he accepted that offering. The people knew then that there was a God and that he had turned their hearts back. The greatest display of God's power, though, it wasn't there on Mount Carmel. No, as a matter of fact, the greatest display of God's power was on Mount Calvary. There, Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. He died. He was buried. And three days later, he resurrected. His resurrection was the demonstration by God that his sacrifice, Jesus' blood, Jesus' broken body, was accepted. And so as we draw near to the altar this morning, to the cross of wood, to the empty tomb, we come to know that Jesus is God and that we see God has turned our hearts to him. Well, there's no altar here this morning to draw near to. So what are we to do? How are we to respond to this? I want to give you a few practical steps this morning. As you consider how it is that we are to draw near to God. First, I want to point out to you that we must draw near to God humbly. We must draw near to God humbly. You see, you have nothing to be proud about. Nothing. You are a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. And so what are we to do? Well, we're to humble ourselves and draw near to God. James says that when we respond to God with humility, he responds to us by drawing near. It says in James, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so church, we must approach the altar of God humbly. We must approach humbly. We must also approach holy. You see, true faith in Jesus is faith that is only in Jesus. True faith in Jesus is faith that is only in Jesus. So we must be entirely, completely leaning on Jesus. Jesus is not one of many good options. This is not roulette. You can't place more than one bet. Galatians 1 warns us about adding to the gospel. Placing our faith in more than one object, it actually negates the value of our faith. Undermines the object of our faith. Galatians is very clear that Jesus plus anything is nothing. 
And Jesus plus nothing is everything. So we must approach the altar wholly leaning on Jesus, wholly trusting and placing faith in Yahweh. So we approach him humbly and wholly, but we also approach him boldly. You see, with sincere, pure faith, we approach the throne of grace as Hebrews instructs us. And we don't do this because of anything on our own. We talked about this a moment ago. We do this in confidence, the work that Jesus did on the cross, because of the power that he demonstrated there on Calvary, working on our behalf. So we approach him boldly. And lastly, we approach him thankfully. The Bible says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you hear the theme there? Here Paul is speaking to Christians and he says, Be thankful. Sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Give thanks in everything you do to God. We must be a thankful people. And as we approach God, we must do it with gratitude. Perhaps the best way to induce gratitude is to consider what it is that you have to be thankful for. No doubt you've experienced something similar to this, pouting, being caught by mom or grandma, and forcing you to write a list of all the things that you have to be thankful for. As you begin to write that list, you swear that you won't be pleased, you won't become grateful, you won't have a better attitude. And yet as you begin to populate the list, you recognize that you have so many blessings, so many things to be thankful for. We won't make a list this morning. It's not the task that will run we do have so much to be thankful for. From the least of us this morning to the greatest, we have so much. And chief among them are the fact that Jesus Christ has invited you to his altar to behold his power. Which is to say that he is changing your heart. So what greater blessing, what greater gift than this invitation from Jesus this morning. That after all, is the supreme gift that the greatest gift that we have to be thankful for. So as we come to the communion table this morning, come boldly. Come in gratitude. Come holy. Church, come humbly.